Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be talking about Indonesia's project under President Joko Widodo to transform itself into a maritime power. Jokowi launched the idea of Indonesia as a global maritime fulcrum, sitting astride strategic shipping lanes at the juncture of the Indian and Pacific Oceans, and formed a new coordinating Ministry of Maritime Affairs to oversee this transformation. The ministry oversaw the formulation of Indonesia's first national ocean policy, launched in February, and made headlines in July as it launched a new map of Indonesia, altering some of Indonesia's maritime boundaries and renaming an area of the South China Sea that Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone as the North Natuna Sea. To discuss this new map and Indonesia's maritime vision, we're joined today by Dr. Arif Havas Ugraseno, Deputy Coordinating Minister for Maritime Sovereignty within the Maritime Affairs Coordinating Ministry, a key figure in the development of the National Ocean Policy. Pat Havas, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, it's mine. Yeah, and delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, could I start by asking you about this new map of Indonesia that your ministry has recently launched? And I guess the detail of it that's really grabbed attention has been the creation, shall we say, of a new sea uh, in naming part of the area Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone around the Natuna Islands mm. as the North Natuna Sea. Um, could you just talk us through the motivations behind the decision to name that area as the North Natuna Sea? The updating of the map is our exercise that we are doing on a regular basis. And the last time we updated was 2005. And uh, we decided to update uh, this year because there are a number of uh, new developments. Uh, the most important one was or were the three treaties that we signed, two territorial water treaties with Singapore that closed the territorial waters uh, boundary between Indonesia and Singapore on the west and east side of uh, Singapore Strait and also one of the longest uh, maritime boundaries that Indonesia has is with the Philippines on the boundary from the Sulawesi Sea all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So these are the three important legal issues bilaterally that we believe needs to be reflected in the map. And also there are very important decisions on the tribunal of arbitration between the Philippines and China. This tribunal handed a legal victory to the Philippines in a case it brought against China, finding China's nine-dash line that encloses much of the South China Sea to be incompatible with international law, and ruling that none of the disputed features in the Spratly Islands could generate a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. China refused to participate in the case and does not acknowledge the decision. And in that decision, we believe the tribunal has clarified number of uh, long-standing issue, which is the definition of islands and rocks and the maritime zone of island and rocks. And it, it strengthened our position, especially in certain waters. Uh, on the naming of the seas, if we go back in 1953, uh, there is an old document of the International Hydrographic Organizations, a document called S23. This old document referred to the naming of seas. So the naming of seas in the world are not made by us, they are made by the colonial powers. They name the sea as they wish. 
So in 53, there's this old document that defines South China Sea all the way from Hainan, Taiwan to, to, to border with Java Sea. And we all know that uh, in that area, there are uh, names of uh, lo uh, local names of the, of the waters, like Straits of Karimata, for instance, or Natuna Sea. So in 2000, uh, we proposed a change of the name of South China Sea. Uh, and it was accepted. In 2002, there was a final draft of the renaming of part of South China Sea, and that is Natuna Sea included there to depict the waters behind the territorial waters of Indonesia. But the problem was that the document was not agreed because there are other different issues unrelated to South China Sea but it's still related to the region. There's a dispute between two East Asian countries. So, so this one dispute of two countries have actually stopped the uh, IHO to adopt other names. So when we reviewed again and uh, we look at the fact that in the continental shelf that belongs to Indonesia, in the northern part of Natuna, we have been using block names on the basis of uh, wind direction. So northeast, north, south, uh, southwest, southeast Natuna. So it's there in the continental shelf. So we then believe that it's just to uh, coincide with the continental shelf. So that's I think the reason. There's no really you know, more substantive than that. The renaming of the North Natuna Sea, I guess, has got attention because there have been incidents in the past 18 months between Indonesian patrol boats and both the Chinese and Vietnamese mm. Coast Guard. Looking at the map Indonesia has issued, it looks like the North Natuna Sea extends beyond the continental shelf out to that area where mm. the borders... The EZ. Yeah, the yeah, EZ, yeah. Uh, where the borders have not been delimited with Vietnam, Malaysia, and China has a claim to maritime rights that Indonesia doesn't acknowledge. How does naming that area as the North Natuna Sea feed into that dynamic. It has nothing to do actually because if countries still want to enter, they will enter regardless of the name. And our position is not so much changed in terms of, not so much name, but the, the outer limit of our, our maximum EZ claim. So we are entitled to have uh, 200 nautical miles from our baseline. But actually, if you look at Indonesian EEZ law 1983, we are quite flexible because our maximum claim in the Natuna Sea is not maximum. Uh, it's not 200 nautical miles. We are entitled actually to go all the way 200 nautical miles, but we did not do that because the law uh, on EEZ 1983 specifically mentioned that uh, on the EEZ, uh, when it is not yet completed, uh, the negotiation, then we will only stop at the median line. And if you look at the Convention Law of the Sea, UNCLOS does not say median line. UNCLOS actually gave us 200 nautical miles. So we could have gone all the way 200 nautical miles, but we did not do that. So it's not, uh, it's nothing to do with the naming, I would say, because the most important part, it's the outer, outer limit of the BZ uh, claim, yeah. whatever the name. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we have seen some of Indonesia's, I guess, experts in maritime law and international relations interpreting the naming as something of an assertion of control over the area by Indonesia. Um, uh, 
people making that case off the mark? We can name it Atlantic Sea, but we still <laughs> exercise control. <laughs> Given you're describing it as normal and something that's been underway for some time, are you surprised by the amount of attention the naming of the area of the North Natuna Sea has attracted? Yeah, because people are you know concentrating on that, not on the you know important aspect, which is mm. also relevant to rule of law, which is the inclusion of the treaty and also Indonesia's uh, application of the decisions of the tribunal, which I think that is much more, in our view, that's much more important because then there is a country who actually implement, you know, outside of the case itself uh, in its national positions. Apart from this map that Indonesia has just put out and the implications it has for boundaries, of course, uh, we've also seen the national ocean policy yes. uh, launched in February this year. Can you tell us about that national ocean policy, why it was necessary? And yeah. Is it a collection of existing initiatives or are there new elements? Well, first of all, it's the first time that we have an ocean policy. Mm. In the neighborhood, uh, in our neighborhood, the first country who did have ocean policy is Australia, all the way back in 2002 or three, And we even sent our university and professors, academics and um, researcher went to Australia for a couple of weeks to learn the line of the thinking of Australia to, to establish an ocean policy. And in 2004, we have an internal discussion here in Jakarta on Indonesian ocean policy. It was discussed a couple of times. 2007, we have a draft, but the draft was just remaining a draft. 2012, we have already a document. You can search in the internet, 500 pages or so, but it, it's academic paper. It's, mm. it's not, it's not as a policy issue. In the old days, uh, old days meaning in the early times of our independence, uh, up to the 50s and 60s, we had uh, a lot of concentrations to fight recognition of Indonesia as an anthropologic state. That goes all the way until 82, when uh, Convention of Law of the Sea finally recognized that, and 86, when we ratified, and we had a lot of concentration on the implementation of the conventions. We are the only archipelagic state that issued archipelagic sealing passages, so we are a pioneer on that. At the same time, there are a lot of questions on the ability of the government to provide equality to the remote islands. There have been complaints uh, by lack of service, no attention uh, by the central government to the uh, remote areas. Even the remote areas, also some mountains area there. So it's a, it's a lot of homework, but there is not a single coherence document. And the current government, with the idea of having a national thinking, national policy priorities on ocean issue and maritime issue, with the jargon of global maritime fulcrum, as a bureaucrat, we're very happy that we have this uh, political slogan and we want to materialize that into something that is concrete, uh, a narrative that is very clear, simple language with a very technical, concrete documents to, to follow. So it consists of things that we have done in the past, but we also have some new issues uh, in the future and also new threats. Mm. And um, the new threat that we see today is the marine plastic debris. 
this is a new threat that we see and we, we need to, to do something about it. So the ocean policy is a national guidelines for central government, for local government, uh, other stakeholders to streamline their policy on uh, ocean or fisheries program. It covers a very comprehensive element, human resources on maritime issues, natural resources on maritime issues, the environment uh, protections, marine environment protections, the issue in relations to defense, security and safety, economic development, infrastructure development, maritime diplomacy, maritime culture. But there is one underlying uh, element uh, that is very important, which is to shift the policy of development from Java-centric or Sumatra-Java-Bali-centric to Indonesia-centric and also to give substance to Indonesia-centric by giving priority to economic development and equality in the remote area. So now you have a new design on sea routes. We have more vessels that combines a very crowded port, which is of course profitable, and less crowded port, and there is just simply no people port. So with these combinations, we can still make money, but we can uh, at the same time provide the social service. So today, the price of gas for cars in Aceh, in Natuna, in Jaffa, in Ambon, in Sorok, they're all the same. In the past, it's different. The goods, uh, food, cement, chicken, and all the stuff, they all have gone down by 40%. So with that, people have more money to spend. And we develop 10 tourism area, for instance, in the remote areas, including Labuan Bajo, in Nujampat. So these are the, the spots that we are looking at. We are now pushing a lot on the uh, marine tourism. The number is quite promising. We have an increase in tourism as a whole. Now it's about 4% of the GDP and marine tourism plays around 2% of the GDP. So it's a, the number is very, very promising. So we wanted to create, I would say, the capitalization of these oceans, these waters. Hmm. So in the past, it was more of ideology to say that the ocean unite the islands. Hmm. But now we want to give substance hmm. to that. Uh, and that is why I think the underlying issue is equality. I mean, you mentioned marine tourism, I think, is 2% of GDP. Yeah. Uh, what percentage of GDP overall would the maritime economy constitute? Um, we are working with the, with the National Statistics Agency. The preliminary number is about 6%, but we are, we are looking at a deeper number. So, but this is the first time, actually. Mm. Not very many countries in the world has a very clear picture on the maritime economy vis-à-vis uh, -vis GDP, uh, maritime economy in terms of workers, in terms of exports. It's, it's, it's not very easy. The data is out there, but they're not aggregated. So we learn from the European Union. Uh, they have that number. The Dutch maritime economy is 3% of the GDP, hmm. 28 billion euros. 
200,000 workers and the export is about 30 billion, I'm not so sure. The French maritime economy is almost the same, 3% of the GDP. So, you know, I don't know whether Australia has that one. Oh, uh, not sure. Yeah. But this is a breakthrough exercise. So this year, I would say there are two national products that is very important. The first one is national ocean policy, and the second one is this indicator of the maritime economy. I've seen the numbers. Some are not very promising, but it's good because mm -hmm. we know the numbers. So in the year after this, we know which area where policy intervention is required. You said 6% is a preliminary figure of GDP for the maritime economy. Do you have a sense of where Indonesia would like to see that figure shift? No, it has to go up. Because we've done uh, that analysis, the preliminary, uh, the number has increased since 2010 actually. 2010 it was around 4, uh, I don't remember the detail, but the 4 to 6 is okay. Mm. But it has to be beyond that. Because we have seen a number, a number of analysis saying that the potential of the Indonesian maritime economy is somewhere around 1 trillion US dollar. So, mm. But there's still potential, it's mm. very difficult. But to be frank, it's very difficult to actually calculate the potential because one-third of Indonesian ocean is deep oceans. 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 meters uh, from the surface. And we have not done a proper survey of those waters. Uh, we have two or three new vessels that can uh, do research all the way to 10,000 meters. So this vessel can be used in Mariana Trench, but we are planning in stages to do the proper research in those in this water. So the the vessel are just new, like last year, French uh, research vessel. We bought two brand new. Uh, it's owned by the Navy, yeah. and I think uh, you know we will be able to do that. Um, if you remember the story of the fish Shilakant in Sulawesi, the uh, fish that is supposed to be extinct for million years ago, it, it served in Sulawesi. So you're saying you don't know what's out there? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And you mentioned infrastructure also is a key priority under this national yeah. ocean policy. You know, what is the priority? Ports and... Ports and vessels, mm. uh, more vessels. We calculate that we require about uh, around at least 7,000 vessels. We need uh, to have about 24 to 20 to 30 ports. That's why we are working on that. Uh, and also the inland connectivity, mm. because apparently from the World Bank analysis, the inefficiency of the port is also related to the inefficiency of the railroad and also the roads. I mean, here in Jakarta, for instance, you have really major traffic jam if you go out of town to Bandung because there are a lot of lorries and lorries are not supposed to be on the toll road, they're supposed to take the goods uh, container boxes on the, on the railways. So they go, they have a dry port in Chikaran, but from Tanjung Priok to dry ports, you have to, uh, you know, drive two hours or three hours. And, um, and that's already waste a lot of time. Hmm. So that's a problem that we face in different area. Uh, because uh, Indonesia basically jammed in all these big cities, uh, creating a space for better road and also railways inland and also increasing the efficiency. It's, uh, it's a must. Yeah. It's a part of the design.
So we have worked with uh, with the World Bank. We have worked with uh, some consultants. There are two papers coming up from McKinsey and Pricewaterhouse about the the gridlock in Indonesian infrastructure in the port. So we we addressing those things now. And I mean, how will Indonesia finance it? Uh, yes, that's a question because our budget it's not enough. We have done the calculations. Our budget can only finance infrastructure only 45, 48% max. Mm. So the rest it has to be a private sector, private investments. Mm. And that is the reason why in our infrastructure development, we don't take a loan. We give it to business to business, mm. B2B. The development of, for instance, the largest port in the of Malacca is done by Port of Rotterdam which is owned by the city of Rotterdam and Palindo, Indonesian state-owned company. You know, we are working in, in that mode, so business-to-business business arrangement. In media reporting, there's been a lot of focus on potential Chinese investment in these yeah. infrastructure needs. Um, do you see Chinese investment as a major source of funds for this? Um, the, the largest investment uh, in Indonesia is still Singapore, number one, which means that it could be not Singaporean, it could be even Indonesian, it could be European, so we never know because it's a, Singapore is such a international capital for finance in Asia, along with Hong Kong. So this number one is Singapore, number two Japan, still. Number three, uh, Europe, number four, US, number five, um, China. So China is still is already in the big ten, but not uh, the top. Now. In terms of foreign investment, uh, we are open to all investors. I think at the end of the day, the one that dictates is the, the rate of return, costs, you know, more of a business uh, constitutions. Okay. So we have a successful Chinese investment in uh, Morawali, Nickel. We have successful Chinese investment in Konawe. Same thing. We have uh, a lot of success of European investment in petrochemicals, for instance, in East Java. So the Americans are still there in oil and gas. The Europeans are basically in lots of different areas in Indonesia as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do you see China's One Belt, One Road concept creating any opportunities for Indonesia? Yeah, it's a, it's a good opportunity for us to tap on the resources. But again, at the end of the day, it's rate of return and the financing. How much is going to cost us and how much the company is going to to make uh, profit out of it, so yeah, it's, it's a win-win. So it's a uh, you know it's a lot of opportunity for for everybody to make money here in the Indonesia. It's uh, it's clear. So we are open to support foreign investments. The Chinese investment in Morawali is a very interesting model because you have a Chinese fund there uh, investing in nickel, and we buy nickel from Australia. And also we buy cobalt from South Africa. So it now produces steel and also produces carbon. And you know, they are, they are making good profit. So South Africa is happy, Australia is happy, we're happy, China happy. So economic development in the local area shoot up very high. So it's a, you know, it's a win-win. I mean, in Australia where we've seen Chinese investment in sort of port operations and the like, it's created yeah. sort of intense domestic debate and security concerns. Uh, okay. Has that been replicated in No, Indonesia? port operation, it's uh, state-owned. 
Hmm. It's like the airport. Yeah. There's Pelindo. For one to four hmm. Pelindo port operators. Uh, it has to be still on. Airport, the same. Angkasapura one and Angkasapura two. So there are some parts where we outsource. Uh, I think here in Surabaya they outsource with the Hutchinsons from Boa. Hmm. I don't hmm. remember. Hmm. Um, you know, but um, basically port operators are still on because it's still a um, lucrative business. So that's why the government wants to have a hand on lucrative business. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned um, sort of apart from the economic factors, there's a security dimension to this ocean yeah. policy. What are the most pressing security issues for Indonesia in the maritime? Well, it's the, the outlook of the mm. security because in the past, our security outlook is very much, well, still is actually linked to the budget. So, yeah. you know, with the post-crisis, we don't have money. So then we structure the defend with the minimum minimum essential force that will be intact until 2024. But uh, that was before Indonesia member of G20. So now Indonesia has the G20. We have a good economic growth, 5.3 percent. So if we if we hit seven percent, then we hope we can increase our defense spending to one to one and a half percent of our GDP. And um, we. We need to have a posture that defense posture that uh, represents our area, commensurate our area, and also commensurate with the threats uh, mm. that we face. And, and what are those threats? Well, the traditional threat, non-traditional threat, and the climate change threats. And I would say climate change threat creates also a lot of issue, the disasters. The natural disaster that requires the military to have uh, the you know, capacity of disaster relief. That would be, I would say, big thing in the future. Okay. I have met people who said that they found a trench in southern part of Java that may, according to some expert, may replicate what happened in Aceh, tsunami 2004. So I don't know. Hmm. Uh, it's this is an academic discussion, but that is one thing. Ring fire is another thing. So because we have seen this, and then also the climate change uh, mm. aspect, the um, flood in different parts of Indonesia. Yeah, I mean, your yeah. focus is very much on natural disasters. There's that a sign that Indonesia is fairly at ease with the security environment beyond that kind of natural... Sort yeah, of, yeah natural of course, uh, the, the, the posture of the military, the, the number of the vessels, that we need to require, um, you know, the illegal, illegal, illegal fishing issue. Now it's very prominent. The drug trafficking. Mm. The police has just found out, uh, just uh, arrested a yacht with one ton, you know, of drugs. This is unprecedented in Indonesian history. Maybe not so in North America, uh, because they even smuggle uh, drugs with submarine. America, here is something new. And looking at the Indonesian map, looking at Indonesian waters, you know, uh, I am sure this is not the first time that they smuggle drugs uh, from uh, from seaweed. So, yeah, these are these new uh, phenomena. Mm -hmm. Because in the old days, we we were just transiting point, not a marketing point. Now Indonesia is a marketing point in terms of drugs. So we have become like uh, the Western in industrialized nation where 
we already become a destination of uh, drugs marketing. And um, this is a bad, um, bad news for us. So we have to be looking at this in a different way. And I mean, finally, when you read this national ocean policy and I guess some of the commentary around it, you know, in your opinion piece in the Compass Daily recently, you described Indonesia's geographic position as yeah. a super strategic crossroads. Yeah. Um, in practical terms, what sort of opportunity to Indonesia does that position present? Oh, a lot. There is something that we have just been saying it, but without actually tapping it. Hmm. So port is one thing. So that's why we build the port in the of Malacca. Okay. And the issue in relation to the navigations is very important for us. The issue of vessels need to rest before they go to China, Japan and Korea after a long stretch from Europe or from Africa. That's, that's a big money. A vessel sparking in the streets of Singapore is a big money, but also a big responsibility in terms of the marine environment, and the cleaning up of the, there are some oil spill and things like that. The, it's strategic in terms of resources because it's a, it's a, it's a meeting of Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean where, where foods for fish are, are so abandoned. So, you know, that's why we need to fight illegal fishing to keep a fish stock. So in a different aspect, it's a, if it's very super strategic. Yep. That's why we want to tap that uh, resources for the benefit of Indonesia and also the region. Mm. So resources in terms of the service, the use of the ocean for navigation and also what is contained inside it. Well, Havas, I'm sure everyone will be following closely how Indonesia succeeds in those efforts to tap that opportunity. And thank you Inshallah. so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Arif Havas Ugroseno, Deputy Coordinating Minister for Maritime Sovereignty within Indonesia's Maritime Affairs Coordinating Ministry. Talking Indonesia returns on 17 August with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, remember you can catch up on the entire Talking Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or using your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.